Hello, everyone. Ben and I are so excited about our upcoming August podcast, which will be a live question and answer session with you, our listeners. If you would like to submit questions ahead of time, you can do so at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org or look for more information in the coming days at ncwildlife.org or our Facebook page. We look forward to hearing from all of you. You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, folks, welcome back to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. I'm Corey Oakley, and I'm here with Ben Ricks. Say hey, Ben. Hey, guys. Really appreciate you guys tuning in. Appreciate all the feedback you've given us. This is still one of my favorite parts of my job at the moment is talking to you guys. Absolutely. It's been really cool and been awesome, and the feedback has been tremendous. We continue to get feedback all the time, really. Ben answers more emails than I do because they go to him first, and but we really appreciate everything that, that y'all are doing out there listening. Today, we have, I think, a pretty worthwhile topic and something that a lot of people don't think about when they think about the Wildlife Commission and fish biology, but truly, it is the backbone of what we do. It's how it all started. It's how it all started, and it is the backbone of what we do, and that's our hatchery system. And today, we have David Deaton with us. David, introduce yourself. Tell us what you do with the Wildlife Commission and why you're here. All right. So I'm David Deaton. I'm the fish production supervisor. So I supervise all our production facilities across the state. Okay. So what is a production facility? So they're fish hatcheries. Okay. The reason I'm calling them production hatcheries because we do a little bit more than just fish. We do some other things at some of our other locations, and I can talk about that later if you want to. No, that's good. No, I mean... We know what production is, but sure. you know, people out there listening, they might not know that word, but that's what we're doing. For our anglers, you know, David's probably their favorite person. They just didn't know David existed. Exactly. They didn't know who he was. Yeah. But I mean, stocking fish is one of the favorite things the anglers. I mean, it's, it is a tool. It's not the only tool that we use, but it is a tool, but it's a very popular tool because, you know, it's a visible and obvious thing people love to see fish being stocked they love to see the hatchery trucks driving by because they think more fish means better fish and in a lot of cases that is true yeah i mean like as you know when we go out and talk to anglers it's probably the number one if not the top two things that they ask for they're like when are you going to stock x or when are you going to put more of this in the system and Like you said, a lot of times it's a great thing, and that's why we do it, right, is to provide that opportunity for our anglers. But there's also times that it's not necessarily necessary to make a good fishery. It is a tool in the management toolbox, and it definitely has its place, and it has other times where it's just not needed or not warranted. So, you know, and I think we'll get into more of that as we talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. So, Yeah. So, David, to tell everybody out there that doesn't know about our program, let's start with where are our production facilities? Where are our hatcheries? Maybe just go from east to west and maybe that'll work out that way. Sure, sure. So our furthest east would be our Watha State Fish Hatchery. It's located in Pender County. Well, at Watha, it's our warm water facility. It's our largest 
warm water hatchery. So at that facility, we do striped bass, largemouth bass, bluegill, channel catfish, white catfish, red breast, red ear sunfish. We have done American shad in the past. Hybrid striped bass. Hybrid striped bass. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to go through the list here. No, it's head. fun. No, it's good. They do most of the warm water production. And if you head a little bit further west, our McKinney Lake State Fish Hatchery, and it's in Richmond County, they are primarily a catfish grow-out facility for our community fishing program ponds. But then they also stock at some of our other ponds located on game lands and things like that. And then they also raise Robust Red Horse, which is part of our non-game program. Okay. They're also doing a little bit of work with smallmouth bass as well, because that's another project we're working on. Okay. So then you head a little bit further west to our Table Rock State Fish Hatchery, and it's located in Burke County, and it is a cool water facility. Cool water just because the fish are a little different temperature requirements. Cooler, maybe? Cooler, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that facility primarily raises walleye, muskies. They do smallmouth work as well. And then they also grow out catfish for CFP locations further in the western part of the state. And then they also help out with the trout program. They'll receive trout early in the winter or late in the winter and then stock those out early in the spring just to assist our trout hatcheries with distribution. And then you move on a little further to the west to McDowell County. And we actually have two hatcheries in McDowell County. The first one would be our Marion Hatchery, which is, I kind of equate the hatchery at Marion to uh, kind of the trout daycare. Gotcha. We receive eggs there from either federal hatcheries or from our other trout hatcheries and incubate those eggs, hatch them out, grow them up to fingerling size, and then ship those back to the trout hatcheries for grow out to stockable size. Another aspect of the Marion hatcheries, it's also our fish technology center, fish culture technology center. So anytime we're dealing with new species or new technologies that can help us in fish culture, we do that work there. It's set up to where we can kind of do the research and development, figure out how to raise the species, how to use the different technologies, and then kind of implement those in our larger production facilities. I think... That's a very important thing for our listeners to know is like, if we need a, to stock a certain fish, it's not just a matter of throwing a male and a female in an aquarium and say, spawn. I mean, there's a secret recipe that you guys have to figure out that works for your system that's nothing like what happens in the wild. And you guys have to kind of figure out how to trick these fish into to spawning successfully in a way that produces results. And it's different for every species. Right. No species is going to be the same. So it takes a lot of work for sure. Yeah. I mean, like you said, every species is different and has different requirements. And so we kind of have to, to figure that out sometimes when it's, when it's a new species. Yeah. Going back to Marion. Yeah. Also located at Marion is our Conservation Aquaculture Center, which I don't know how many people actually know what that is, but that is our the production program for our aquatic wildlife diversity group. So we do a lot of non-game species there. Primarily right now we're doing mussels, freshwater mussels, several of which are either state listed, endangered, things like that. We're trying to arc some of those, put some of those back out to restore populations. And some of them we're trying to keep from becoming endangered. Sure. And I really think that's important to tout because, you know, North Carolina is one of the states that's kind of leading their way in non-game hatchery 
stuff. You know, we were one of the first states to get a facility like that. And it's groundbreaking work, you know, that other states have kind of picked up along the way as well. So it's important work that you guys are doing in that facility. It is. And if you look at where we started from, like in 2008, we started in basically a Rubbermaid storage shed. You've come a long way. Yeah, come a long way. So now we have a brand new facility. I've had great staff through the years that have developed the techniques. And we're kind of posed now where we can really produce some animals. Yeah, so it's not just trout, bass, and catfish. I mean, we're so far beyond that these days that, you know, we still do a lot of that, but it's we're way beyond that as far as what we're producing and the needs that we're filling. Yep, yep. And besides mussels, we're also doing some kind of non-game fish, which are not sport fish, not things that you would normally go out and try to catch, but the minnows and things like that, you see. We But once again, like Ben said, very important things, trying to reestablish animals that are either very rare on the landscape or don't even exist on the landscape anymore. I mean, there's animals we have at our facility here in Marion at the Conservation Aquaculture Center that aren't even on the landscape anymore. We're like one of two or three places in the world that the animals still found is, is here at this facility. Yep, the magnificent ram's horn snails. Yeah, that's what came to mind. Yeah. Yep. And those, all those animals, although they're not, you know, maybe fun to go catch and things like that, they're important. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Very important to the biodiversity of our state. Right. right. So, uh, a lot about Marion. Uh, That's okay. There's a lot at Marion. There's, there's, there's a lot going on here. So, kind of moving into the trout program. So, the in McDowell County, there's also the Armstrong State Fish Hatchery. And it is primarily a trout hatchery. I mean, that's its sole purpose. They have brook and brown broodstock on site that we take eggs from, you know, to produce those fish. And then rainbows, we get rainbow eggs from, from different locations. We don't maintain a rainbow broodstock. But the Armstrong Hatchery, they stock about a little over a third of the trout that we distribute, which is about 1.2 million fish a year in trout. It's a lot of trout. It's a lot of trout. A lot of trips. Yeah. A lot of road time. Move a little bit further west to our Bobby Insetzer State Fish Hatchery. That's the other trout hatchery. It's kind of our largest trout hatchery. They do, like I said, a little over 75% of the trout production. That's in Transylvania County? Transylvania County. Yeah, out near Brevard, right? Yep. So just listening to you, I hear a lot of, well, there's a lot of diversity in the work, right? I mean, you got staff that are growing a lot of different types of animals at different times of the year. Kind of give us a... I don't know if I want to say a year in review, but, you know, a lot of people think it's just growing fish and that's not really what it is. I mean, it is growing fish. That's the bottom line of what's happening. There's a lot that goes into this, right? So kind of take us in a, you know, as brief as you can, I guess, in because I know it's a lot. <laughs> Why don't you take one, yeah. whether it's trout, whether it's stripers, take, yeah. just pick one and say, what does trout, this look like? Yeah, because it's, yeah, that's probably the easiest one to do. So, with trout, like I said, we stock about 1.2 million catchable size trout each year. And that's a catchable size trout's 10 inches or better. And then we also stock 4% of those will be 14 inches or bigger because we like to try to put you know something out there that is kind of a memory maker. Yeah. So a typical year with trout, then that production is all year long. Those 10-inch fish that we stock, they take 12 months to produce. So we're trying to, I guess, 
plan ahead almost two years Mm -hmm. in what we need to produce as far as taking eggs, growing those out, getting them up to the correct size at the correct time because you don't want to have fish too big too early and run out of space. There's a production plan that goes into place there. But I mean, a typical season, I guess, during the winter, we'll start in January and just kind of work our way through. That'd be good. During the winter, the trout have kind of slowed down. So you're basically just kind of feeding, cleaning, removing any mortalities that happen and getting ready for the spring. So January, February, that's what's kind of going on. And then come March, we start stocking. And stocking out of the three hatcheries that stock trout, we'll have over six or seven trucks on the road every day. Wow. Yeah, going all over the mountains, right? Corey and I just got recently lost on a mountain road. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> like two days ago. Yeah, because we're in the mountains right now filming this podcast. We made a wrong turn, and that was a poor idea by me. So, yeah, driving these mountain roads is not for the faint of heart, especially in a... In a stocking truck. <laughs> tank full of Two-ton water. Two-ton truck loaded with water. Yeah. March is pretty busy because that's also when we're stocking the delayed harvest waters and trying to fill all the hatchery-supported waters in preparation for opening day. So you're up against the calendar to boot. Yeah. So you're hitting everything in March. And of course, during that time, you also have staff that are at the hatchery feeding the fish, cleaning the intakes, cleaning the screens. Yeah, it's constant. That's a lot of work. It's, you know, at the end of the day, I think the take home I would give to people, and I don't know you're going to keep going about other things you do, but it's 24 hours a day, it's seven days a week, and it's 365 days a year. There are no days off at the fish hatchery. No. The bulk of our hatchery guys live on the hatchery. They live on the grounds. They can't leave it. I mean, they rotate through, but they can't leave it. Like, somebody's always got to be there because if it goes south, it could go south quick. Yeah. So, I mean, it's farming. I mean, it's like if you've got pigs, cows, anything like that, you know you're constantly taking care of them. And like you're right, we do have staff that live on site and have somebody that's sort of responsible for the hatchery 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Christmas, Thanksgiving, I mean, all the holidays. So, yeah, you can't leave because you're taking care of animals. I know farming's this way too, but particularly what I've noticed about hatcheries is that, like, if a screen gets clogged, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly on a trout hatchery, if a screen gets clogged, you know, all your fish could die because you lose water quality. You know, you might lose flow, but you die and relatively yeah, quickly. Yeah, relatively quickly, within hours, those fish could yeah. be dead. And you've lost, as you just mentioned, you've lost a, year's a worth year of work. to two years worth of work based on the size of that fish at that point in time. So it's critical that, you know, people are on the grounds and and keeping care of these animals all the time. Yep, it is. And you got to watch the weather as well. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I'm a fish biologist and I didn't grow up in the production side of it. But as I've moved up through the Wildlife Commission, I've had opportunity to work alongside or at least see that side, the production side of it. And the staff that we have and how dedicated they are to it and how just like things that I take for granted, like a thunderstorm comes up, right? Or maybe not a thunderstorm, but at least a a significant rainstorm is coming. Your folks that work for you are preparing for that as it approaches because they're looking at how much rain is predicted to fall, all those kinds of things, because that's significant to them into how much maintenance they're going to have to have on the hatchery grounds at a given time. 
Yep, it is. It blows my mind because, you know, me, I'm back at the house. I'm twiddling my thumbs. Oh, the rain's out. I'm not going out on a boat today. You know, as a fish biologist, I'm not thinking about, at that point in time, I wasn't thinking about, well, our hatchery staff is working overtime to keep the animals that I've asked for on our stocking list and requested. They're working overtime to keep those animals alive. Yeah, the big thing is maintaining water flow. Yeah. Keeping, because, well, aquatic species need water to survive. Uh, theme, 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 <laughs> theme for this podcast. Fish need water. Yeah. Yep. There you go. You've heard it from multiple fishermen, fish <laughs> yeah, biologists, right. and now a hatchery guy that fish need water. Fish need water. Yep. And so our hatcheries that require like surface water, flowing water, well water things, you know, we're always having to monitor currently what we have coming in. But then, yeah, like I said, we have to look at the weather and see, well, how's this going to impact us? And try to make preparations to keep things from going south. So I stopped you in the middle of, you were into April and you were stocking, right? So let's pick up from there and kind of go on. Okay. So staying in March. Oh, we're still in March. Yeah. I'm sorry. I put you in April. I didn't mean to. So yeah, March with the trout, we're stocking. If you look at our other facilities, the other hatcheries, the other species that we rear, March becomes March Madness. It does. And it's not because of basketball. Sorry. Spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. Things are, are clicking, going, moving. Yep. So Fish are trying to spawn. There's a lot of activity in March and April at all our facilities, really, regardless of species. April, May, first part of June, still a lot of stocking going on. In the warm water world, we're starting to harvest ponds of fish mm -hmm. that we produced in March. And stocking fingerlings in different locations. You move on into July, August, September. It starts to slow down a little bit in the heat of the summer. But you still have animals on the facility oh, at yeah. all times. You've yeah. still got animals. You're still feeding every day. I probably don't want to tell what our feed budget is, but yeah. we go through a lot of feed. Yeah, I see those bills. Trust me. Yeah. Yes, we do go through a lot of feed. Well, and they don't grow to no, 10, 12 inches without feeding them. Right. They need water and they need food. And some of our fish eat fish food. You know, then we have other species that, of course, have to eat other fish. So we either have to purchase those fish somewhere to feed them or raise them somewhere at one of our other facilities. You start to go through the summer, slows down a little bit, and then you get into the fall. And then in the fall in the trout world, that's when we start spawning. So, and you're also stocking too, because you got the fall delayed harvest stockings that take place. So we'll have staff out stocking fish and fish or staff back at the hatchery spawning fish, which is you know pretty fun process. Too. Yeah, we actually have broodstock on site, the males and the females, and we'll check the females. And when the eggs are ripe, we actually strip spawn those eggs, fertilize them, and then we incubate those in our hatcheries. So you're busy. That's what we're boiling down to. Yes. And these are all fish that were requested. The biologists have made requests for these fish to be stocked. Yep. And whether it's trout, whether it's striped bass, whether it's catfish, what have you, they're all based on the stocking recommendations from the biologist. But the other thing is, is there's not a lot of room for, like, if a new request comes in, something else has to, y'all are operating at capacity, I guess is where I'm going with this, right? I mean. Yeah. So if we make a new request, it's not a cornucopia of, yes, yeah, sure. It's something else has to shift one way or another. And we are, you know, depending on 
whether it's warm water, cool water, whatever, cold. We're pretty much at capacity at our locations, but we are planning some renovations at our sets or hatchery, which will increase our capacity for trout. So there will be opportunities to increase our trout numbers and trout stockings. You know, at our warm and cool water facilities, those are primarily ponds or what's called extensive aquaculture, where it's most of that's reared in ponds. So we only have so many ponds. Right. We are limited there. Now, one thing that we have started doing is looking at ways to rear fish intensively, which means kind of more like in the buildings. Right. And we've done that with like our muskies. You know, we used to put muskies out in ponds to grow those. And we kind of switched over several years ago to intensive culture where we actually take the muskies, we strip them, strip the eggs out of them, fertilize the eggs, hatch them out. And then we keep them in troughs in our hatchery buildings from, well, till we're ready to stock them in October. We spawn them in the spring, stock them in October. And we feed them fish food inside the building. So we're no longer using, you know, four or five ponds to rear muskies. We're able to do that in a smaller footprint and, and be more efficient. So, you know, anytime we can try to look and figure out how to save space, we do to try to bring in new species. I think. One of the things I appreciate about the production program is how diverse it is. Whether you're down east at Huatha raising striped bass or you're up in the mountains raising, my word, everything under the sun here in the mountain region. If you think about from walleye to now we're trying to look at smallmouth bass to snails, mussels, snails, snails muscles, and mussels, and non-game fish, mad toms, and you name it. It's just so diverse. And I think the thing that I would want our listeners to get an appreciation for is how diverse the work is. And that Ben mentioned it before, it takes time to learn these things. Like when we first started doing mussels, we didn't have, and we still don't have it all figured out, right? But we learn each time that we grow a crop of animals. We learn something new, something about them that kind of helps us fine tune things. And if you look at growing trout, we kind of know how to grow trout because it's been going on for a it's long period cookbook. of time. It's pretty cookbook. Yeah. But, you know, as we approach these new species, it's a learning process and it takes time. It's not like, as Ben said, you can't just put a male and a female out there and, and expect it to just turn out because that's not how it's going to work. There's so many different requirements for every animal and it's just crazy to me. Yeah, the freshwater mussels are a perfect example of that. There's several species and, well, let me back up a little bit. So mussels, you know, they're unique. Yeah. They require a fish host yeah. to reproduce. We could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. But anyway. Some of those species, you know, we get in, they're, we don't know a whole lot about them, and we don't know what fish host is required. Some are kind of generalist. They use like bass and things like that, and then others are really specific. So you kind of have to do your research. Where do these mussels come from? What fish species are in that watershed? Do some host trials. Bring some of those other fish species into the lab. Try to infest them, see what works, what doesn't work. How do those mussels need to grow? What kind of substrate do they need to be in? What kind of growing system? What kind of food? Yeah. Like the food's all different. Yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. For those that are listening, you know, in order to grow a mussel, you have to maintain and, well, first figure out what fish species is the host, but also maintain that fish species in the facility as well. You're either holding it yeah. or you have to collect it right. from the wild. When so you, you basically have to have two species yep. that aren't similar at all in the hatchery to grow one species. Yeah. 
to do the culture, you have to have the fish. <laughs> right. And the mussels. So, I mean, it's a fascinating process. And again, we don't have time to get into the life cycle of a mussel and this whole thing. But those fish are needed to rear that. And it's just one more thing that you guys have to have on this on the facility to be successful. So it's impressive. I also think a part of the diversity that I really like is that your staff is supporting a lot of different things that the Wildlife Commission finds very important. One of the things that you just talked about was trout, right? Like you grow 1.2 million trout a year. So you're supporting programs that our commission has established that are very long-term programs, like the public mountain trout water programs, the hatchery-supported waters, the delayed harvest waters, which we've talked about on this podcast. It also supports programs like the community fishing program, which allows, you know, we go and stock these really small municipal places that allows anglers in fairly urban areas the opportunity to go fishing. They don't need a boat. They don't really need anything but a fishing rod. And they can go out and, and catch these animals and, and mm-hmm. be able to take something home to eat. It's hugely popular. I mean... Yeah, in places, it's extremely popular. The one that I work with in Kinston. Yeah. At New, New Sway Park. Yeah. It's, I mean, they love that program. They love you guys for doing it because there's fish there. There's fish in that pond regardless but those catfish go in and it's a very popular thing for those guys in that area. Even then that, those programs cross over because now we're stocking mountain trout yeah. in the wintertime in a lot of those community fishing program areas. You know, a lot of these municipal lakes across the state that we're utilizing those areas to put trout in for the wintertime and it's wildly popular, crazily popular. Yeah. <laughs> like if you don't start believe it, good. calls in July. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go to a stocking event at one of these municipal, and people were like lying down the bank waiting on the truck to get there, which is like that in the mountains too with trout. They're lying down the bank waiting on the truck to get there, and they almost have this thought in their mind that as soon as the trout dump in the water, they're going to bite their hook. And sometimes that does happen. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm like, they do need to get acclimated. They've been on a journey. They came from the mountains, and now they're in, what's the furthest east we stock trout? Is that Tarboro? Is that Indian Lake in Tarboro? Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, they're going from the mountains of North Carolina. They're going from Transylvania County. Transylvania County the all the way hills. to Tarver. <laughs> so, these trout are a little shook up probably mm-hmm. when they first get there. You know, so we have those programs, but then we have a lot of other things like we have striped bass and reservoirs where we've established fisheries for years, but we also have things where we're trying to restore populations. Like in the fishing world, we're trying to restore things like walleye on Lake James, and we're trying to restore things like smallmouth bass where Alabama bass have had such an issue with them. And then you get into a whole new world, which we've touched on in mussels and fish that are our anglers wouldn't really know that they exist unless they just really keyed into those kinds of things, but they're very important. And a lot of these animals only exist in like one river drainage in the entire world. And because of habitat loss and all those kinds of things and habitat use changes, these animals are imperiled now. And so as an agency, we've taken it upon ourselves to try to reestablish a lot of those animals across really the entire state. I mean, we've got animals here at the Conservation Aquaculture Center that, yeah, are from the mountains to the coast. It doesn't even have to be here. We're doing that. You mentioned at McKinney Lake, we're doing that for an endangered species in the robust red horse. And that's the thing about our hatcheries is whatever species comes up. Yeah. We have different locations that have 
different types of water quality, different types of, I guess, environmental conditions. So we can utilize space at all our hatcheries. Yeah, and I just think that's the cool part about it is y'all grow so many different things that mean so much to not only us as fish biologists, but mean so much to our citizens, to the citizens of North Carolina. Like you add so much value to those citizens. And I think that's the great thing about our production system. And for the most part, it's our job as the biologist to ask, like, can you? And for the most part, you guys have found a way just about Every time we've asked. There you know? are times David rolls his eyes and looks at me. And <laughs> well, I'm not saying he rolls his your, eyes at me. Have you lost your mind? Yeah, I have, but I'm just interested. Do you think you can do this? But can you? Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate that I've got staff that that's kind of job satisfaction for them. It's to like, okay, here's a problem. How can we fix it? How can we make things work? Sure. Here's a request. Can we meet it? You know? No, they do a great job. It's amazing what they do and how hard they work. But on the other side of that, though, is our staff, if they need something, we drop everything and go get it. Oh, yeah. We know where our bread is buttered, so to speak. <laughs> we, we know that we try to keep hatchery staff happy. They can't meet our request if we don't give them the fish they need to make it. Yeah, so that's right. It's definitely a team approach to it. So one of the things I'm hearing as we're talking about this is really interesting, like the why we're stocking. Let's take brook trout, for instance. It's an opportunity. And in other places, it's restoration. So one, the same fish may be used for multiple different reasons. And I think that's really cool. Striped bass is another one. On the coast, it's a restoration project, also opportunity. And the reservoirs, is an opportunity project. And then, you know, with some of the wild non-game stuff, that's preservation. Yeah. Preservation or restoration. You know, it may be that we're just trying to make sure that the world doesn't run out of them. Yeah. Well, I think it's opportunity as well because there's a lot of people out there that want to go snorkeling for them, mm -hmm. you know, to see those animals on the landscape. So there's opportunity there as well, for sure. But yeah. So, I mean, if you're a fisherman, this is for you. If you're a naturalist, this is for you. If you just like knowing that we're doing things that are good for the environment and things to try to restore the habitat and the environment, I mean, this is all kind of, so it hits multiple notes for multiple different people. So, moving into the future, David, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you see when it comes to raising animals? Well, probably capacity is probably the biggest challenge. That yeah, I our needs continue to grow, don't they? Our needs continue to grow. I mean, you know, obviously, North Carolina's growing in population, and that does impact the aquatic resources. So, there are, there are needs to look at other species and, and things like that. And so, yeah, we do have... I predict we'll need more space, and we have that possibility at some of our hatcheries to increase pond space and things like that. But in that the future. takes money and time, right? It takes money, takes time, planning. Yeah, we have several systems that if we don't keep stocking, you know, reservoir stripers. We'll use them as an example. If yeah. we don't stock reservoir stripers, the number of reservoir stripers will dwindle over time. They would disappear over time. Right, that's correct. We've got other projects that are more restoration-centered that really the end game or success is defined as... Getting them off of the list. Let's not stock them That's anymore. Right. You know, so it really just depends on on the system and the project. But yeah, with a lot, especially with the restoration, the plan is not to stock forever. The plan is to really put the hatchery out of business, so to speak, on that one project so that we can move on to something else. Right, right. Back to what you started with when we first started the podcast, it's a tool. Right. It's a tool for many different things. The production that we have 
can mean different things in different projects. And you mentioned that striped bass, we do it in several different ways. And our long-term goal on the coast is to not stock striped bass anymore. We want them to be naturally reproducing and that they show us that, you know, it doesn't take a stock fish to maintain them on the landscape. Right. We're not there yet. We got a ways to go. I mean, the Roanoke's really the only place where, you know, there's a fairly good number of fish that are reproducing on their own there. All the other rivers on the coast, as you know, I'm speaking for you now, which is dangerous, <laughs> very dangerous, really dangerous. <laughs> scary. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Let's see how I do. As you know, all those southern rivers need stocking if you're going to restore them, so to speak. And there's other needs as well. There's habitat needs. There's all kinds of things that are needed for those restorations. So let's just kind of boil it down in an overly simplified. You have a system, you have a fish. We're not even going to talk about what it is. And, well, there are not as many here as there used to be, according to fishermen, according to our surveys. Well, a lot of people are like, well, we need stock. Like, that's just the knee-jerk thing. But for us as biologists, it's our job to figure that out. Like, yes, stocking woods. But really, for me, the more important question is why do we need to stock so that we can understand, like, what's going on? Because if it's a habitat issue, doesn't matter how much we stock. Yeah, we can stock forever, and it's not going to make a difference. You know, it won't ever matter. So it's really important for, and that's what we mean by it's a tool. Because if it's not the right tool, it's not going to fix the solution. Or it's not going to present a solution. Yeah. So really, when we're looking at stocking, it has to be in conjunction with really something else that we're also doing. So it just depends on the goals of the project itself. But really, from the work that I do, I'm most entwined in. The real question is, well, why do I need to stock in the first place? And can I fix that problem? Yeah. So the other thing I'd like for the folks listening to know is you talked about having broodfish, David on the facility. We don't really do that other than really trout. There's just a few species. Yeah, there's just a few species yeah. that we do that. So, And there's a lot of reasons why. Yeah, they're hard to maintain. They're big, large adult fish. They eat Genetic. a lot. Genetics. You don't want a yep. genetic bottleneck fish. Right. I mean, there's just so many reasons why you wouldn't do that. And I get that. So when we go to raise striped bass or raise smallmouth or you name it, right? Other than the few that we have on hand, we got to go get those fish somewhere. Yep. And so that's where biological staff and production staff, that's a lot of coordination. They're, like you said, it's March Madness because it generally is happening in March <laughs> or early to mid-April too. It's not just for basketball. It's not just for basketball. It truly is March Madness. Uh, staff across the state is scattered out searching high and low because once again, we'll take striped bass because that's the one I'm probably most familiar with in the hatchery system. Jeff at Watha doesn't want a five-pound female. Right. You know, he'll right. look you right in the face and be like, that's a waste. Please don't bring that fish here. Yeah. You know, he wants that 10 to 15-pound female because he knows, I mean, it's all math, right? I know I'm going to get a certain amount of eggs out of that fish. I know from that point forward how many fry I'm going to get out of that. And then from that point forward, how many fingerlings I'm going to get out of that if everything goes the way I think it's supposed to go. And so we got staff searching high and low for... 10 to 15 pound stripers. I mean, the entire coast is doing it. Some staff in the Piedmont are looking for them, but that's true across the state. I mean, people, you look at walleye, we're looking for a good walleye. We're looking for a good smallmouth. And you can't just take the first five fish you see and think it's going to work. There is a process there and it's quite Yeah, you need very specific, (laughs) mature enough fish. And it's kind of nerve wracking a little bit that time of year, just because you know you need the brood fish. 
Yeah. I've got a list that has the request. You can't make apples without an apple tree. Yeah. You know, there's numbers there. We need to produce X number of fish. Yeah. It's math. It comes down to math for y'all. When brew stock are not easily obtainable, you start to get a little worried. But, you know, I will say the cooperation is definitely there because very seldom in, in my career have we not met requests. Yeah. Well, I think I brought that up just to say that there are a lot of people that are working to grow fish in the state of North Carolina that work for the Wildlife Commission and the Fish Division. Yeah, it's not just the hatchery staff, it's the biological staff as well. (laughs) It's across the board. I mean, there's a lot of people involved. Even our Raleigh office staff. Yeah, at times. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the plug, David. Appreciate that. Just to spell that out, I know, and you hear this all the time, you got an angler that's like, well, y'all got this project going on here, but y'all aren't doing anything in my system. Well, let's take Norman, for example, there is a biologist at least for a week in the spring that's on the coast. So however far that is away from you, he's breaking his back to get the brood fish for the fish for your lake. Yep, you know. Yeah. So just think about it that way. There's probably at least a dozen people that are involved in that stocking and they're all working to get those fish in that lake and they're working for you so that you can go out there and catch them. And we're thrilled and happy to do it. And it's the best job there is. Yeah, it's the best job there is, and we love doing it. But, say, a lot of people think it's just bang and it's done. And it's just not that. It is all the time. David's staff is working around the clock to produce these animals, and we're really appreciative of the work that y'all do. I want our listeners to know this, because this is some cool stuff. Yeah. We talked about genetics a minute ago in terms of genetics that we needed, but we also are evaluating our stockings with genetics. And it's some like CSI stuff, really. You know, it's like really neat. So we take fin clips off of the parents and then we spawn the fish, stock the fish, and it may be years later that we collect the fish again. And we can take a fin clip off that fish and know whether or not it was a hatchery fish. We can also know what year that fish was stocked. If the date is right, we could know which tank and what day that fish was stocked. What location it was stocked at. Yeah. So it's all kinds of things. It's this amazingly important tool. And just as an example, on some of our coastal rivers, we thought before this technology came out, we thought, well, we're stocking a few fish and that's probably helping things, but they're probably spawning just fine on their own. What we found out when the genetics came back was it was 80, 90% hatchery fish and that the spawning rates were very poor. The natural spawning rates were very poor. So it completely flipped the fish management script as far as what we're doing. So this genetics tool that we've started using, and it's in several other species as well, is just, it's an amazing tool for us to have as resource managers because whether you like it or not, your genetics don't change over time. And so so that's a permanent mark that we can use for the whole life of that fish. And so it's great. And it's all of them. Yeah. It's not like we tagged 20% of the fish and we're extrapolating on that. Everybody's got that mark. Every fish we tag, if we have the database of genetics to test it, we can tell. And that database is expanding and expanding with each year. So it's it's an amazing tool that we now have. And really... 
how good our stocking is really based on how good we can evaluate our stocking too. Yeah. Because that lets us know, do we need to stock more? Do we need to stock less? How do we tweak and turn that kind of thing? And I'll flip it on you. You said what we found out is that our stocking was really important and that 80 to 90% of the fish of the stripers on the coast were basically fish that came from our hatcheries and that recruitment and reproduction was very low in our rivers. There's also the flip side of that. There's been stockings that we've done where we've had the genetic marks and we found out, not stripers, but other species, sure. and we found out, well, that was a waste of time. Because right. they were reproducing fine on their own. They didn't need our help. You know, our hatchery's contribution is like less than 5%. You right. know, So why would you go through all that trouble and try to raise these fish for you know, a 5% contribution is probably not worth it. So that tool is extremely important. It tells us a lot of things about how successful we are and how important it is, whether it's worthwhile or not at the same time. No, it's definitely, it's great, but it's a really neat tool that I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about. Well, I'll add one other thing to that. I mean, the the genetics, that's the way to do it. I mean, that really is. It's great. But, you know, every fish that we stock, aside from maybe the catfish for CFPs and the trout, you know, all the other species that we stock are marked. Right. Because there are requests that the biological staff made and the biological staff evaluates those stockings. I mean, that's, I don't know if the listeners know that everything that we stock does get evaluated. There is a lot of work behind it. There's not a blank canvas here where we're just dumping fish in a hole and hoping it all works out. Our staff, but whether it be the biological field staff or the production staff, we're constantly evaluating our programs, constantly evaluating whether this stock in here is working or not working and and retooling it, you know, based on what we see. And we use, you know, use the genetics, like the parent-based tagging, to evaluate those. But also there's other methods that we can oh, yeah. we can tag with coded wire tags, mm-hmm. pit tags, or OTC marks. You know, there's different marking methods. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I'll take that even a step further and say we evaluate everything we do, whether it's a stocking, whether it's a length limit change, no matter what it is, we don't just do stuff and then say that ought to be good enough. You know, (laughs) we try not to. (laughs) We try to do things and we try to evaluate them and say, did this or did this not work? And if it didn't, what do we need to tweak to make sure it does better the next time? All right. So one of the last things I want to ask you is, you know, we talk a lot. I think everybody that knows anything about stocking, we're always talking about trout, stripers, maybe largemouth, maybe striped bass. I mean, I said striped bass, maybe smallmouth bass. What are some of the the new species that we've either started or are thinking about starting growing across the state that people might not be familiar with? Hmm. Well, in the coastal areas, we are doing the white catfish. Okay. So white cats are native to the eastern half of the state, yep. or to the Atlantic Slope, been wiped out by invasive catfish. Ben may be able to elaborate the reasoning uh, behind all that. Yeah, they're native. Channel catfish are not native, but channel catfish and white catfish get about the same size, about the same shape. So the question is, we've stocked them in a few of our smaller lakes in the southeastern part of the state to see if they would, you know, what the use is. But also the benefit there is they're a better choice than channel cats just because they're native. And if you can have a fish that suits the same need, but it's native versus non-native, that's generally a better way to go. Yeah. And that's one we had to play with in the hatchery. Right. And still playing with. Yeah, still playing with. The jury's still out as to whether or not that's 
works are done. The sustainable way to That's go, right. you know. So, uh, there's PCs. I stumped you. Yeah. Well, there is one, and we don't actually produce it. We Well, we hatch it out and grow it out. And it's being evaluated to that stocking or the kokanee salmon mm-hmm. for the Nantahala. Mm-hmm. That was an established fishery there. Mm-hmm. And the numbers went really low. And so we're in the middle of a project right now where we're actually obtaining eggs, kokanee eggs, hatching those out at our sets or hatchery, growing them up to fingerlings, marking those with OTC. And then we're, we're stocking, when I think we're on year three. Okay for a five-year project to evaluate to see if we can bring those numbers back up. Gotcha. For me, I think the ones that would be interesting, I mean, we've talked about a lot of them. You know, the walleye project's interesting. Yeah, it's fairly And new. not a lot of people would know about it. The muskie project's interesting, and not that many people would know about that, too. So I think, yeah. I think those are a couple that at least our anglers would be like, oh, that's cool. Remind me, are we growing lake sturgeon? Yes, we do stock lake sturgeon in the French Broad. We're not hatching them out, though, We right? don't hatch those out. We actually obtain those from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Okay. We bring those to our table rock hatchery as little fry. Gotcha. And then grow those out. So about what size are they when you stock those out? Eh, about eight to nine inches. They need to be big enough that we can mark them. Gotcha. And usually that is removing a scoot. Yeah. So Lake Sturgeon, we're native to the French Broad. And yeah. then... Humans coming and building dams and habitat changes, which we talked about on the Muskie podcast, affected lake sturgeon, basically extirpated, meaning got rid of them in the river basin, and you're trying to reestablish them back in the French Broad. Yeah, and that's a that whole drainage. I mean, that's a multi-state project. So Tennessee's doing yeah. some of it. We're doing some of it. Georgia's doing something that's to try to reestablish them, basically in that that watershed. I got you. Cool. Anything else that you can think of? I mean, I know we're growing a lot of mussels that we normally didn't grow and hellbenders. Hellbenders, yeah, which is not even a fish, it's amphibian. Right. We do have hellbenders that we've had on site for, for several years now. They were actually, I believe the eggs were obtained from the Davidson River and sent to the zoo in Texas where they were hatched. And then we received them back and we're playing with those. It takes a while for those to reach sexual maturity. They're gotcha. just now starting to produce egg clutches. And so we're trying to, to figure that out and hopefully can be successful. So lots of neat stuff being grown at our facilities for sure. Yeah, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me the work that they all get done. So, Yeah, I don't know that I could wrap my head around it every day. David does a fine job. That he does. No, I just have good staff. I just see paper fish. <laughs> That's true. I understand that point <laughs> yeah. for sure. So, and folks can go to our hatcheries, right? Are they open to the public all the time? Are they open to the public at certain times of the day? I mean, what's a good, if somebody was coming to visit, what's a good idea? The facilities are open, you know, usually during the week, like Monday through Friday, eight to four or whatever. You know, that doesn't mean you can come and like free roam the facilities because we do have certain areas on different facilities that are like, we keep shut down for like biosecurity. Yeah, it's like that. biological control. But I mean, you yeah. know, to come, more than likely there'll be staff around that, you know, can show you around a little bit, things like that. Yeah, don't just go wandering. Find somebody with a wildlife diamond on their shirt. Maybe call in advance. Call in advance would be great, especially yeah. if you're going to do like a tour. I mean, mm-hmm. we do school groups a lot at our various hatcheries. Yeah. Yeah, just call the hatcheries in advance and schedule a tour. Cool. Well, is it time for questions? I think it is. Sounds good to me. It is. Let me pull some up. One of the first questions I have is, 
actually from my buddy Nat. And he's got a fairly old pond, probably 30 to 40 years old. And he wants to know how can he know if the fish in his pond are healthy? You want to give a shot of that, Corey, or you want no, me to take it? I want I'm you to take it. Guy. You're the pond guy. I mean, I could tell you, but it needs to come from the expert, so we'll let you be that today. So, and David, feel free to <laughs> jump in. You yeah, for, I forgot. David's a pretty good He knows pond a expert. little bit about he ponds. He knows a little bit about ponds as well. Just paper ponds. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you have an older pond and you're wanting to know, like, are my fish healthy? Are my fish in good shape? The best thing you can do is fish it. And if you're catching bluegills and bass and maybe a catfish, and also they're varying different sizes. You know, you catch little ones, you catch big ones, you catch little bass, you catch big bass. Your pond's in pretty good health as a general rule of thumb. If all you're catching is one thing and it's one size, that may be an indicator that there's something that's a little out of whack. But as a general rule, if you've been catching fish and a lot of people worry about their fish, and I get it, you want to make sure you're doing the best by your pond, by the fish. If they're growing and reproducing and you see little fish and big fish and you see you see bass beds and brim beds and they're spawning and later you see little bitty one-inch brim swimming around, your pond's probably fine. I'd say another indication is is like how fat they are, how right. skinny they are. If your bass are real skinny, then something's out of balance. Doesn't mean it's bad, so to speak. It just means it's out of balance and you might need to do something to get it back in the balance. Mm-hmm. Definitely that. If your fish look like they need to eat a cheeseburger, they, yeah, yeah, they need a cheeseburger treatment, which is not me, but no, yeah, then they're probably having some sort of forage limiting yeah. situation. The other question we get is, is my water okay? And to be honest, if you got frogs, fish, and turtles in your pond, you're fine, your water okay. is probably okay. And there's really no need to test your water unless you have a specific concern. A a broad-spectrum water test probably won't tell you anything. You need to be asking about something that you have a concern with. So as a general rule, though, if animals are using your water, it's good water. So another question we have is Heiko Lake. Corey's been on there a handful of times. A few, just a few. How are the bass and the crappie in Heiko Lake? Anything about the health? What's the status of the population? That kind of thing. And this is from a Mr. Bass. A Mr. Bass? Is that his real name or is he pulling our chain? I'm going to say it's his real name, but it's an awesome last name. That is an awesome last name. So for those that don't know, Heiko Lake is a Duke Energy Reservoir that is in northern Person, Caswell County, right on the Virginia border. It's about 3,000 acres a little bit more in size. Historically, it is a tale of two lakes. There's a very productive side of the lake, and then there's a very unproductive side of the lake, meaning that part of the lake is muddy, part of the lake is clear. And that affects fish growth. So the bass in general are not what I would call very robust. There will be six-pounders, seven-pounders, five-pounders, that kind of thing. But there's a lot of fish that are a foot long, foot and a half long, that look pretty skinny. And so that's the way that lake has always been for the most part. If you look through our data for the last 30, 40 years, that's generally how that lake. Now, a lot of people bass fish it and a lot of people like bass fishing it, but it would not be the lake. I would say that's the best bass fishery in the state. That's not the case. As far as crappie goes, it does produce quite a bit of crappie. There's a lot of eight, nine inch crappie in the lake. 
it can oscillate from year to year, just as we've talked about crappy on the podcast before. It depends on reproduction for the year. But in general, it's a fairly good crappy lake and a lot of people crappy fish it as well. I don't know if I'm answering the question all that great. I'm hearing lots of bass. There's a lot of them. Maybe not a 10-pounder lake, but lots of bass. So in the Piedmont, a lot of our anglers are looking for a fishery that consistently produces like three to five pound fish, right? Sure. That's not going to be Heiko Lake, at least not on a consistent basis. That doesn't mean that you can't go out and there's somebody right now listening to me and say he's a liar. (laughs) (laughs) That Corey guy got to step up his game. I'm catching him all the time. Because, I mean, we would catch those fish, but generally those fish are, the vast majority of them are smaller, skinnier fish. Mm -hmm. Part of that is based on the type of habitat that's there. Part of it's on the production quality of the lake as well. So, I mean, if anybody's ever been to Heiko, they know there's parts of that lake in certain times of the year, you can see eight feet down. That's how clear it is. Yeah. Clear lakes are not known for fat bass. Yeah, that's exactly right. So... Mark that down. That's another theme for this podcast. <laughs> Your legs are not known for fat bass. So that's a part of it. But now, crappy in general, I wouldn't say they're the biggest or the fattest or whatever. They Once again, it's a production thing. Right. A food chain thing. But there are eight, nine-inch fish quite frequently caught at the lake. Well, what I'm hearing is I can go there and I can catch bass and I can catch yep. crappy. Yep. So that's yep. not a bad thing at yeah. all. Now, if you go way back... In the history of Heiko Lake, that wasn't always said about that because there was selenium issues in the lake in the early to mid-80s, and that really like killed a lot of things. It killed bass, it killed bluegills, it killed a lot of stuff when that high metal content got in the water. But that doesn't happen anymore. Right. So that's not a concern. Not a concern anymore. Gotcha. If you really want to know today's current data on Heiko Lake, contact Seth Myko. He's the district biologist in D5. He's a good dude. He's a bass fisherman, loves to bass fish, tournament bass fishes as well. He's up on his his bass in District 5, and uh, he'll be able to give you all the information about Heiko Lake. He's yet another biologist that also fishes too. So we're out there. Our next one from Mr. Sam. He's a big ultralight guy. He likes using an ultralight spinning reel, and he's wondering... If he could use that to catch trout in the mountains. And the answer is emphatically, yes. That's all I use. Boom. There you go. (laughs) Go for it. I don't fly fish, so that's all I use is ultralights. Just make sure if you're on delayed harvest waters, it's single hook, artificial lure. Right. That's what I was going to say is the best thing you can do is go to our, the trout magnet, it's a trout worm. I actually caught some crappy the other day on a trout magnet. They work for just about anything. But, Go to our webpage, nswildlife.org. Go to the trout page. It is a huge wealth of places that you can go with a fly run, with a spinning rod, with and it has all the rules spelled out. It'll really help you figure out where you can go with your ultralight and catch a trout. And like we said, we've been stocking them, so you might as well go out there and take advantage of And the of stocking them. schedule's on there, too. Right, so you'll know exactly where to go. Yep. So And when. It's a huge, (laughs) tremendous resource for trout fishermen. So that's amazing. Well, I wish we had that for every angler type, but... That's hard to do. It'd be very hard to do, but trout guys really, it's a wealth of information for them on there. So, Well, I would encourage everybody to keep sending in questions. As we've mentioned in the previous podcast, when you send in your questions, send in your contact information. We'll send you stuff out about the two bald biologists, things you can use. And we're not going to like spam you. We're going to no, say, we're not going to spam you. Thank you. And we might send you a sticker with our new logo That's on it. That's basically or something like that. what it is. Pretty yeah. cool looking. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to bombard you 
No. I mean, Ben might, but I don't have the time to bombard you. So it'll be all on Ben. If Ben's spamming you, you send me an email and say, tell Ben to stop spamming me. (laughs) David, we can't thank you enough. Thank you for the time. I know you're busy and uh, appreciate all that you and your staff do for us and for the citizens of North Carolina. Well, thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Ben and I are so excited about our upcoming August podcast, which will be a live question and answer session with you, our listeners. If you would like to submit questions ahead of time, you can do so at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org or look for more information in the coming days at ncwildlife.org or our Facebook page. We look forward to hearing from all of you. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org.